So uh, thank you everyone for watching or listening to Howling Coyote. And I'm really thrilled that Linda Tuwahi Smith is joining me today. And I hope I pronounced your middle name correctly. Um, my Maori is not so great. And uh, anyway, she's the, the author of, of a wonderful book on indigenous methodology that a number of us have read and avidly. And I'm looking forward to, to having a conversation with her. And uh, Linda, do you want to say anything more about um, your origins, your country, your location, etc.? Kia ora, greetings everyone. Um, I'm from Aotearoa, New Zealand, and at the moment I'm coming to you from a place called Rotorua in the middle of the North Island. So thank you for having me and hopefully we have a good conversation, Lewis. Thank you. Thank you for, for joining me. So um, I thought I would jump in with, um, by telling you about a conversation I had with a colleague from the University of Toronto who was asked to prepare um, a a paper on evidence-based traditional healing. And he discovered that he couldn't come up with evidence that the mainstream people who were demanding this from him would accept. And I, I wondered if you encountered that and if you have thoughts about how we um, relate to mainstream uh, reductionist, logical, positivist um, researchers who discount um, anything but the randomized control trial. Yeah, but even if you had a randomized control trial, um, they wouldn't necessarily accept it anyway because the thing with evidence-based policy and evidence-based or claims um, to use evidence as the basis for good governance and good decision-making is those in power decide what is good evidence. Those in power determine what counts as evidence and they set criteria, criterion, they set benchmarks and standards that, you know, only a narrow kind of... Um, set of research really even qualifies to be uh, included. But when you look at the decisions they make, 90% of it, they use no evidence. They talk to someone down the road and, um, you know, they count that as evidence. And politicians in particular are terrible because evidence is whatever their neighbour said to them or, you know, if they were... Um, speaking to someone in power who didn't like a particular point of view, that becomes what informs their ideas about um, knowledge. And so I'm really skeptical about any claims to evidence-based decision-making. My question is always, well, what evidence counts? Who determines what counts? And even if you have the evidence, would you really listen? Indeed, we, well, we've certainly seen that in the United States. And um, in particular, um, I think in, in medicine, we suffer deeply from the tyranny of the randomized control trial. And um, I've come across a couple groups who are criticizing RCTs as the only way to gain knowledge. Uh, there's a group at Tufts University in Boston and another group at the University of Washington in Seattle, and you may know of others. Um, but, but 
um, it, I mean, it, it, it seems important to critique it and yet no one cares has been my experience that, yeah, yeah that it's the, the RCT or nothing. Well, and it's convenient, isn't it, for um, decision makers to fall back on that when half of them don't even know what they're talking about. And, you know, for the wider social science arena, randomised control studies are considered really unethical. It's okay in medicine when you're testing drugs and, you know, you need strict control groups to really be able to monitor. But for so much of social policy, you can't do that to people. You can't put them into, you know, a randomised or control group and then not do anything about that. It's a very artificial, false way of trying to get, yes, this reductionist idea of, you know, what works and what doesn't work. The best example of, you know, what we're talking about here is the rollout of the vaccines for COVID all around the world. You can have the randomized controlled studies for testing the vaccine. It makes no difference whatsoever for all the work that has to go on in public health to make that idea palatable to people, to provide a service delivery mode for people to be able to influence communities. Randomized control studies don't help decision makers do that. Do and they, they? Yeah, no, they, they don't. And they, they in fact, they stuff it up. <laughs> right. They certainly don't convince uh, skeptical people to, to get vaccinated, that's for sure. Yeah, um, I I remember there there was a period of time before I gave up on getting funding for this particular project in which I wanted to, I was trying to get government funding to look at uh, traditional healers. And my idea was to um, take take a group of relatively homo homogeneous people with, with a condition. Um, I think I had picked asthma because it's easy to measure um, airway resistance. And my thought was, well, let's just have some of them do business as usual and let's have some of them go, to, go see the traditional healer. And it was going to be done on, on one of the reservations. And um, I thought, well, you know, we can we can randomly assign them, you know, to where they're going to go. And of course, some of them will, you know, break the randomization and go where they want anyway. But mm -hmm. still, you know, it's it's randomization. And to my surprise. Um, the only way that I could get funding was if the traditional healers did everything exactly the same to every single person. And I'm like, well, that's not going to happen. <laughs> that's not what they do. And how is that fair, you know, to, to tie their hands behind their back and then compare what they can do with their hands tied behind their back to business as usual. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I never convinced the, the study group um, that my idea had any validity. And um, it, was, it was as if, you know, it was two cultures completely not communicating. Yeah, and, and yeah, you, we do have to be very careful about agreeing for our knowledge to be put under those constraints or put in those boxes because that reduces their efficacy and their power and their specialness, you know, because they're not commensurate. They're not a medicine in the traditional Western medicine kind of or, or treatment. 
model. They are a, come from a particular worldview and um, they are meaningful in a particular sort of philosophy and they make sense for, you know, Native peoples and Indigenous peoples who still live by those philosophies. So, I mean, we've had that here in New Zealand as well where, um, you know, all sorts of different tests were devised to see whether it works or doesn't work. Um, I think they've given up on that now because that for us, we still use our traditional healers when we need to because they deliver or give us other things that Western medicine doesn't give us. They give a read on our spirituality, for example. They um, are interested in our wider sense of well-being. Um, and they have a greater responsibility to us in terms of their relationship with us or our relationship with them as well. So it is a struggle often in the Indigenous knowledge space to um, even try to conform and fit into these sort of medical modes of knowledge, Western medical modes uh, in particular. And, and, you know, in a way, they, those modes um, do harm. They do harm to us and our belief systems, and they do harm to our knowledge. So I, I think we've got to be very cautious about where we engage in those systems and where we try and um, do research in those spaces and where we choose maybe not to. There's enormous value in looking and trying to do both. I mean, that's what our researchers and practitioners are trying to do is, um, you know, they use science when they need to and they use Indigenous knowledge when they need to. And they often try and do those in um, single research projects. And, you know, we talk about it as this interface of Indigenous knowledge and science. And there's a lot of research that's happening in that space for us. Yes, and, and um, in Canada and, well, and where I live, there's, there's um, an elder, Albert Marshall, who has been advocating this concept, um, two-eyed seeing is the mm. way he describes it. And his, in his language, it's Edoaptamunk. And um, it's a challenge because the, the mainstream science is always privileged yeah. when the, oh, when the two do. get together. It dominates. And, and it's not just the science or the knowledge. It's the people, the scientists who dominate um, and who, who use their notion of skepticism to talk too much. Like they don't know when to shut up and they don't know how to listen. I mean, I've done research projects where I've brought scientists together with Indigenous knowledge keepers. And, um, you know, we use these different processes to try and help um, scientists and Indigenous knowledge keepers have an equitable dialogue, be able to talk together respectfully about the things that they do. And when we started our study, we actually had to pull the scientists aside. They can't even talk to each other. Um, respectfully across different sciences. And um, I found it really intriguing um, how scientists behave because they're not, I mean, obviously don't all behave the same way. There, there is diversity, but they've got interesting ways in which they put down other knowledge systems. They marginalize other knowledge systems. They marginalize 
um, difference and uh, divergence, and yet claim, you know, this privilege of being skeptical about other knowledge systems. But when but when those people are skeptical about their system, they get all irate and pack a big sad sort of sad sack response. So it's the system, it's the knowledge, and it's the people who are trained in that system who can be really difficult. How, how did you make it work? How were you able to? Well, we ended up working two different groups. Um, we'd had, we then handpicked some of our scientists because there were scientists who we know just have fabulous relationships with Māori. So we used them uh, to help us facilitate the scientists. And that's when I sort of observed that, um, you know, scientists are trapped in their own subjectivities and their own sense of what it means to be a scientist. And it's a very privileged uh, position that they give themselves, you know, and the way they describe themselves. But what we witnessed in our study is it doesn't hold up even when they talk to other scientists who are in different disciplines. So if you put your biologists and your chemists, your engineers, um, your biomedical researchers or research scientists, they struggle for a common language. So they can talk about science in an abstract sense but they often don't respect each other's science. Um, and they don't, they're also, as you know, reductionists. They deal with small units of analysis. They don't really care about the complexity at the wider level. Uh, maybe theoretical uh, physics people do, but many of them are dealing with unit, very small units of analysis. And I and with our Indigenous knowledge keepers, they come at problems from the holistic perspective. And, you know, they're talking about the whole and the big picture and then the different components within that. And many of our scientists are talking with the tiny little unit and no regards for the whole. So different worldviews, interesting engagements. Um, is there hope? Yes, because there are some good people on both sides who, who like to think about these issues and like to engage and are prepared to have their own views challenged. And then, you know, there are others who you can't move them. They're, they're stuck in their groove. Right. So this, the project that you're talking about, what was the, the question and, and what were the results? Um, the question was whether uh, we could establish, you know, respectful dialogue between Indigenous knowledge and science. And um, gosh, I completed the project. We completed about seven years ago, 10 years ago. I can send you a publication. Sure, I'd um, love that, yeah. Reference that we did on that. And it has since evolved into multiple other projects of, you know, exploring this interface of different knowledge systems. Um, it's actually in New Zealand, there's a lot of research now in the Indigenous knowledge space. It is funded, it's recognised in our science system. It is um, expected that um, researchers who apply for government-funded research money have to address the question around, are they engaging with Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous researchers? So it's a very you know, purposeful strategy that we've had in New Zealand for the last maybe 20 years. So out of that, we've, you know, basically there's a new generation of researchers who are quite comfortable working 
you know, whether they're Indigenous uh, scientists who work in both areas or whether they're non-Indigenous um, scientists who work with Indigenous partners. It seems like New Zealand is a bit ahead of, of us in North America in that, in that regard. I, I think the area that I've seen um, so, you know, conventional science and indigenous knowledge working best has been in um, environmental science. There's been some, yes. I've seen some really interesting um, combination studies on, on fisheries management. Uh, there's a, a interesting woman from the University of British Columbia who, who is indigenous and is has a PhD in environmental science and works in this area and has been writing some some wonderful papers about you know combining the knowledge systems to optimally manage you know commercial fishing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, environmental science is very strong in this area of working with Indigenous knowledge. They've been doing that for decades and getting better at doing it. Um, and also there are more native people who are environmental scientists who can bridge both worlds. And that's certainly the case with us. And it's there's the fisheries, there's the marine science, there's forestry science, there's um, ecology, you know, and waterways, all the things that really are very, very important to Indigenous uh, communities, our right. environment, our lands, our waterways, our animals. Mm. Right. And it, and it seems like the area that lags the most in this sort of integration is health or medicine and it it strikes me as as strangely odd that um, a holistic perspective would be so readily and quickly discounted that it you know from for me um, and I'm I my ancestors are both indigenous North Americans and also Europeans, so I'm a mix. Um, but for me, um, it seems so obvious that that everything about the way you live and where you live and how you live affects your health. Mm. And that um, creating health is about finding harmony and balance, you know, which would be the traditional indigenous perspective and and not going right away to to medication mm. you know to the to the biochemical approach right well i think clinical trials for pharmaceuticals are a specific subbranch of medicine and there's a you know a wider range of sort of bio, biomedical and public health research in which there is a lot of scope to work more with Indigenous communities and Indigenous knowledge. Uh, I know in molecular biology, for example, uh, there have been studies around um, different cancers and families that run in families where, um, you know, once again here, scientists have worked with uh, specific Māori communities and have been able to establish the familial relationships, uh, for example, around certain kinds of stomach cancers that have then led to uh, being able to identify or develop a test that has helped uh, communities or community people can choose whether they want to uh, find out whether they have that um, gene. 
and um, make decisions about future treatments. So, you know, there's a lot of other research in medicine and health, a lot of public health research where I think there's a great deal of um, opportunities to work with Indigenous communities. I think clinical, the clinical um, studies, you know, around testing efficacies of various pharmaceutical interventions are that's just one element of research. And I don't think we need to be too hung up on them. Yeah, I can see that. It's it's um, harder when one practices medicine because <laughs> the, um, the onus is on giving out drugs and not working holistically. That's right. It's it's there's health and well-being, and then there's giving out drugs. <laughs> That's um, true. You know, and I think giving out drugs, and you'll notice with antibiotics, has created other kinds of problems. You know, that there has to be a limit in terms of, um, you know, what drugs can do at the moment, and particularly combinations of um, drugs that people with multiple, you know, morbidities might have that um, I'm just, it doesn't necessarily heal people or cure people. It manages certain sorts of conditions, but it doesn't give them well-being, and it, it often doesn't improve their quality of life might extend their life, but it's not a good life. And um, I think, I don't know about in the US, but you've got such a different health system. But, you know, here in New Zealand, there is this tension between um, what the country can afford in terms of uh, drugs and all the other treatment options that are not based on drugs. You know, it's a, it's a big um, concern how much money a country has to spend on drug treatments versus maybe prevention strategies and um, better primary healthcare systems all those sorts of political issues. Right, uh, right. A big concern. Right. And you're so right that the U.S. healthcare system is, I mean, it's designed to generate a profit for the owners, whoever they are. And it and it does that very well. Hmm. But it, it isn't designed to produce health in the recipients of the care, or I, I might not even say care, the recipients of the transactions <laughs> that take yeah. place. Yeah. And, and so that, that leads me to a question that we've been wrestling with, which is, um, so we're, we're starting a, a, a center, uh, we're calling it the Healing Lodge, and it's a place for um, people to come that have problems with substance use and, and issue, issues around mental health. And we have a goal to integrate cultural practices um, as much as possible while still um, having some more mainstream therapies such as seeking safety and and you know DBT dialectical behavior therapy and so the challenge that we've been the challenge that we have is that the people who fund such things want proof that integrating culture makes a difference 
And of course, the kind of proof that they would like is, is, as you might imagine, some sort of randomized controlled trial, which is clearly not possible. So how would, how would you advise us? How, how do we do something that's indigenous, indigenously meaningful and still uh, please the, the money, the people who give out the money? So there are other healing centres um, around the world. There's a big one in Hawaii, in Oahu, which has been going a long, quite a long time where they do have traditional healers, but they also have um, GP practice, maternity health practice, and I think they've got like an emergency health centre. So I think... Um, there are these centers where different treatments coexist, if you like, and they're more like community-based practices. I, you know, I think sometimes funders set they're simply unrealistic, dumb goals. I don't know how you tell them they're dumb. Um, you know that the goals are dumb in the sense that you need the time and space to develop the measures of what works and what doesn't work. And the use of a um, one-size-fits-all case study control or randomised control study that is completely inappropriate for what it is it's trying to capture, you know, I think needs pushback and I know that's hard because that they hold on to the money um, but in a sense if you want if you want status quo outcomes well you're going to fund status quo initiatives if you want transformative outcomes they've got to fund the transformative potential they've got to take that risk and I've got to think about these other strategies. I mean, there are basic ethics involved, you know, the principle of do no harm, I think, applies to whatever the treatments are. There are, you know, principles that protect people, that demonstrate integrity, that they're more important in this space for enabling some of these treatments to be trialed or used or um tested with communities right and um you know my my approach i do life story research and my approach has been to collect stories of transformation mm. and to look at the common elements that people report around their transformation as they work with traditional healers. And as, as you can imagine, uh, for the most part, it's extremely difficult to get this kind of work into medical journals. <laughs> mm -hmm. Just doesn't happen. And yet, yeah. uh, to me, it seems quite powerful, the voices of the people themselves and um, how they see what's shifted in their lives and and their explanations for for what brought it about um and and yet it's it's it you know to the mainstream that well to the mainstream of the profession from which i come it's it's completely meaningless drivel you know, yeah just, doesn't and that's anything. what we're up against. Um, that's a reality, if you like, of power and colonialism, settler colonialism. Um, the amazing thing is, you know, Indigenous communities persist and, and um, there is something powerful in healing approaches that I think appeal to our people and you know you're if you're building a healing center that's fantastic i know 
several initiatives here that are trying to build um, or establish healing centres as well for dealing with addictions, uh, but also trauma, um, intergenerational trauma, and all kinds of, you know, different sort of ways in which we think that the strategy that works for us has to be based on a healing paradigm, not um, a medical model paradigm. Because the medical model paradigm is not about healing, might be about fixing people up. Um, but, you know, healing to us is holistic. It's about reconnecting people back to their knowledge, their identity, their history, their relationships often. It's about um, a restoration of culture. It's about um, ensuring that all parts of their being, their sense of identity, their cultural self, their spiritual self, their linguistic self, you know, their physical self, their psychological self, are all in harmony, are all able to sit in balance, if you like. And I think that notion of healing is really meaningful for Indigenous peoples and others who've suffered this sort of intergenerational and historic trauma. Because a pill does not fix up the harm of colonialism. Right. <clears throat> right. And, and locating the problem in an individual doesn't yeah. achieve social justice. So, mm. yeah. And one of one of the messages that I got from your book, and I hope I, I read it correctly, was I think you were saying that indigenous people just need to develop their own methodologies and in a sense, ignore the mainstream to just say, well, we're gonna do, do it our way. And if you don't like it, well, too bad. Um, did, I, did I read that correctly? You did. Um, and, that, and that's been our approach here in Aotearoa. Because those other treatments, you can, they're there anyway. You can go and choose them if that's what you want. But we have our existing methodologies, but we're also capable of designing new ones that fit with our new context. And so I think it is about improving our sense of agency over our own lives. It's about using and drawing from our own models of well-being to you know, help create this more healing environment. And it's about really aspiring to these more transformative outcomes because I think what we understand from our health system, our education system, our criminal justice system, our economic system is that those systems are designed quite purposefully to disadvantage our people to exclude them, to marginalize them, and to keep them in this perpetual state of impoverishment and um, powerlessness. And, you know, the only way we're going to change that, I mean, the question theoretically is, can an oppressor, can the oppressor um, change themselves? Can the colonizer transform themselves? Well, all the theory in, the, in those areas say they're incapable of it. They can't. They, they can't imagine a world in which they're not on top and the boss, 
or the dominant force. So, you know, that does then beg the question as to what then do colonised groups, marginalised groups, oppressed groups have to do? And, you know, the, the general theoretical response um, from, you know, a range of writers is, you know, we have to free ourselves and um, we have to do that work to liberate ourselves, to exercise agency and to have some belief, like especially for Native peoples, Indigenous peoples, to recover our belief in ourselves, our belief in our, in our people, our belief in, you know, the good things about our philosophies, because they weren't all bad and terrible. We lived and, you know, Native Americans lived on that continent for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. You know, you're in Australia where the research says there have been Aborigine people there for 60,000 years who lived well, who flourished. Um, and in the space of 250 years, you know, have been pretty much almost disappeared with um, in, in a settler colonial society. So no one else can do that work. That's the thing. It's like we have to do that work ourselves because no one else can. We don't necessarily have the funding and all the resources and the power even to really do a good job, but we've got no choice but to try. Because if we don't try, then we've given up. And if we give up, we don't give the generations to follow us a fighting chance. We lock them out of knowledge and hope. And we make their ancestral knowledge even more distant and more difficult to reclaim. Right, right. <clears throat> And, and that's, that's one of the exciting things about where I work, which is Wabanaki Public Health and Wellness, is that our leader, Lisa Sakabasin, has been um, raising money independently of the government so that she's creating these programs that exist whether the government funds them or not. And... I think that's really exciting because yeah. uh, at the conference that I'm attending here in Melbourne, um, in the in the indigenous parts of the program, one of the recurrent themes was, well, when is the government gonna, going to help us? <laughs> I thought, well, maybe they're not going to help you. You know, come come meet our fearless leader who's doing yeah. it without the help of government. Um, That's right. That sounds fantastic. And, you know, in the end, government will come to you because they can't answer these questions either. So I think, you know, I would encourage you just to believe in yourselves and do what you can. Um, in the end, the evidence is in the work that you do. And that yes. attracts support. So on a slightly different topic, could you, could you tell us about um, a new methodology that you've been involved in developing in, in the course of your work? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, there's always new methodologies or new ways of doing things and thinking about things. Um, I mean, what I would say first and foremost is... Uh, researcher trained mostly in the education, social science space is how we frame our research questions is really, really important because that then frames our methodologies, our theories and our methods. And if we get the framing off or get the framing wrong, then everything else that follows, you know, is, is also going to be off center or not work so with my own students I spend a lot of time on having them sort of think really deeply about their research question 
examining it for is it you know simple things is it deficit oriented is it victim blaming is it sort of um you know helicopter research fly in exploit fly out um sort of thinking about all these types of research that we know from research you know that has been done to indigenous peoples and it's really important we don't re reproduce that um, unknowingly unconsciously so there, there are ways to examine our questions and to think about you know what we're asking and what our assumptions are which is what i think good social science research needs to do and then you know when we come to the methodologies um and we're, we're not unique in this. I want to say, you know, I'm not unique in this. Um, feminist scholars, um, you know, Black American, African American scholars have all been sort of working for these methodologies that in the end work. I mean, that's, that's the test of them. If you need people to speak to you, then what are the context in which you know they will speak to you and how is that how does that context shape their voice and you know everyone these days seem to want to gather voice whether it's young people's voices elders voices marginalized voices indigenous voices and you know once again it's like well what do you mean what do you mean by voices? How are you going to interpret those voices? Like, who are you to interpret those voices? What makes you competent to even hear those voices, let alone analyze them and interpret them? So there are a lot of questions that I would, you know, use to um, assess or identify or critique research before we do it. And then the methodologies often fall out of, um, out of the way we've framed our question. So our culture and our language is a constant source of inspiration around methodologies. You know, you would have heard about, um, you know, I think feminists talk about kitchen table methodologies because that's often where women are most likely to speak and be open. Well, we have places where, you know, one of them is we call a hui, a particular kind of gathering where we know our people will speak openly. There's still power relations in that space, but our own cultural protocols mediate those relations of power to ensure you know, that everyone gets to have a voice in that particular environment. We have other cultural protocols for deeper conversations that, um, you know, require more thoughtfulness, that maybe require people over quite a long course of time uh, being able to express their ideas. Yeah, so, I mean, I think our cultures are rich with methodologies that we can use in research. Um, can you can you give us an example of a recent project that that maybe you've supervised with a graduate student? Well, I've got one graduate student who's about to finish her PhD, and she's worked with. Uh, documentary film and video and has basically pursued a genealogical story over generations and been able to um, track that by interviewing a wide range of creatives, artists, musicians, composers. And so she's interviewed them all, filmed them all, um, written children's stories or written stories to reflect back 
two children who she's then um, worked with to for them to interpret those stories. And she's filmed all that. And, um, you know, she can sort of show this, this narrative about their identity as it's crossed from one generation to the next generation to the next generation as a consistent story uh, with these themes, these enduring motifs, uh, enduring themes. And her methodology is, you know, partly built into creativity, the creative practice, uh, but it's also very much based on the fact she's a fluent Māori language speaker. Um, she's been able to work and interview elders in the Māori language, and she's been able to get them to agree to be filmed and recorded. And then she's been able to observe them in traditional gatherings. So at one level, you might say it's, you know, very ethnographic um, in one sense. She is from that iwi, but she has provided a structure to it. And um, as I said, she's on the finishing, that finishing straight of her, um, of her PhD. And I think the way we're framing her, you know, methodology is in that sort of creative, reflexive um, space and this idea of intergenerational storytelling. So storytelling is a common Indigenous methodology and what she's been able to show is the different strategies that are used to tell our ancient stories generation to generation to generation so that, you know, the next generation know the story. All of that is oral, passed on orally. Sounds fascinating. Is she making a film? That She's made a documentary that will sit in as part of her PhD thesis. Fabulous. I, and she's oh. done it during COVID, during the pandemic. You know, <laughs> that's created all sorts of barriers for her. But I'm very proud of her. She's should be finished in before the end of the year. She's just writing it all up at the moment, doing that sort of heavy intellectual work you have to do. Right, right. The final chapter. Those final chapters, yeah. <laughs> and, yes. you know, the thing with methodology, she she's written a lot on it, and I said, well, now, because you've done everything, you're not talking about the methodology you intend to do. You're talking about the methodology you have done. That's, a, you know, gives you more confidence because she's done it. She can talk about what she did, and right. that's a very different uh, position to be writing methodology. In, in, in your work, do you do much with, with um, autoethnography? You know, I read autoethnography and I've, I've thought about autoethnography and I've supervised students um, who wanted to work in that space that I, I can't say they've all been successful in it and um, I'm not sure if I would call any of my recent or current work auto-ethnographic um, but I might you know I might be I might want to do something in that space but it will always have that indigenous flavor to it anyway in terms of you know my question when I started out even before I wrote the book is you know, what does it mean for you to be an Indigenous researcher writing or researching inside an Indigenous community? What does that mean? Because so much of those early ethnographies, the, the theories that have shaped ethnography were written by outsiders working and living amongst Indigenous communities. 
And now we have Indigenous people working inside their own communities. And what are the um, questions and the issues that, you know, we have? Are we outsiders or are we inside outsiders? Are we partially insiders? You know, what are the ethics that govern our behaviours? What if one of our, you know, aunties tells us something we don't want to include in our research? Do we pretend she didn't say it? Do we edit? You know, those are really powerful ethical questions um, that I think we grapple with and we have to grapple with. And I, I can certainly relate to the um, experience of of having gone away and become educated and and that sense of coming back in a never quite fit in the same way again experience yeah yeah and we're all changed mm -hmm. we're all changed by our different experiences and going home is always uh, interesting um, experience as well but but you know there's no perfect ethnographer there's no perfect researcher there's, right. there's humans who do this work and I think it's how do we think about that in ethical ways and in ways that position ourselves um, honestly so those who read our work kind of get a good sense of what, you know, what it is we're trying to describe. Yeah, and I, I think it wasn't it Malinowski who, who tried to argue that it's a, only someone from outside can be objective, as yeah. if there is such a thing as objective, you know, as, yeah. if, as if it even exists. Um, and I, I think he, he poisoned the field of ethnography for years to come. Well, he shaped that field, yeah, absolutely. And of course, you know, they believed they made no impact on the societies that they lived with. You know, and that's also that term going native, that they were able to pretend to go native and live like natives and observe native people and have no impact, which is just rubbish. They had huge impact. You know, and um, and it's why a lot of Indigenous peoples are suspicious of researchers because they were intrusive and they were often unethical and they stole our stories. Well, and so, so often the goal was to get a book, out, you know, yeah. to publish a book. And, and to get recognized and promoted and employed, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. So the whole politics of being a top researcher is another um, whole other thing. But I think Indigenous communities now are very much aware of all of that and, uh, and much more suspicious or guarded about researchers, they make our jobs really hard because now we get really scrutinized um, and asked all, all sorts of critical questions about what we want to do, why do we want to do it, who owns it, who benefits from it, um, you know, who are you, what position um, do you take? All those questions um, are fair questions and we have to answer them, we have to have answers for them. And um, there must be something in New Zealand that's similar to OCAP in Canada, um, ownership, control, um, access, and yeah. possession. Yeah, there's um, similar ideas. I mean, I think New Zealand, Canada, Australia in particular, maybe parts of the US, you know, the protocols for researchers are really highly developed. Um, and I know some Native American nations actually have quite 
strict protocols if you want to do research, like the Navajo Nation. And you do have to apply for permission to the Navajo Nation. You have to fill out forms. You have to answer their questions. Um, so I think our communities are more aware of the concerns. And I don't think we can relax on um, those concerns at the moment. Right. So anyway, I'm gonna have to go. I'm gonna have to go now, Lewis. I've got another meeting at which is six o'clock my time, and you're four o'clock here. Melbourne, right? And I well, don't know what time back in Maine. It it is it is um sometime in the middle of the night. It is uh, <laughs> two a.m. in Maine. Oh my goodness. Yes. But this indeed. is not live, is it? No, no, this is not live. It is not live. <laughs> yes. And and thank you for for uh, spending an hour of your time with me. And uh, I'm I'm very appreciative and um, and uh, time for you to go <laughs> to your meeting. Well, good luck on all your endeavors and I hope you do get some funding regardless of whether you have randomized control studies. Um, and to your audience, you know, I just wish every, every person wellness, look after each other, um, take care. And lovely to meet you, Lewis. Thank you. Thank you for coming onto the podcast. And everyone be sure and check out um, Indigenous Methodologies. So, okay. Yeah. Okay. Bye bye.